I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to our special podcast today, Tara Setmeyer. She is a contributor for CNN, host of the pod, Honestly Speaking with Tara, an IOP fellow at Harvard University and an advisor to the Lincoln Project. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Alexander. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to it as well. I, I often find your insightful and charismatic commentary on the telly. Uh, so thanks for that. And your contributions to civic and civil discourse are, are much appreciated. What is your sense as to the plausible scenario, here we are in the summer of 2020, that this could be a blowout and that this needs to be a blowout election in the fall? Well, um, thank you for those kind words. I, I always tell people I I'm just being honest because I don't know how to be any other way. And in the time that we're living in, I often quote Orwell and say, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And um, we are living that revolution every single day. So um, I, I, I appreciate the recognition and I hope I inspire others to speak up because the country needs that now. Um, as far as the election, you know, we're 20 weeks away and I don't foresee a landslide or a blowout by any means. I think the question whether there's going to be one versus whether there needs to be one are two different things. Um, whether there will be one, I'm not so sure. Um, the, you know, polls are, are notoriously unreliable. We saw what happened in 2016. Um, so I don't take anything for granted. Polls are just simply a snapshot in time. Tara, what do you think are the Democrats and Vice President Biden's most significant vulnerabilities? I think their, their most significant vulnerabilities are uh, veering too far to the left and trying to placate the progressive left base. That is, um, an, I think, would be their biggest weakness because there are a lot more people who are in the middle who feel like they are politically homeless there are Republicans, even though Trump claims he has 95% of Republican support, we see that that is softening somewhat. And this is not the same, same dynamic as 2016. Uh, Joe Biden is not reviled the way that Hillary Clinton is. And a lot of the Republicans who held their nose and voted for Trump, who are exhausted by him and by the chaos that he has created in the presidency, will find it easier to vote for, for Joe Biden but not if he tilts too far to the left. That's not what the country wants. They want normalcy. They want a man with decency and character, and they're exhausted. And Joe Biden is that guy. But if he lurches too far to the left, I think it'll hurt him. Do you define that veering too far to the left in who he selects as VP, or do you define it as an ongoing question that is tested during the length of the fall campaign? I think it's both. Um, usually the vice, president the vice president selection is not as important as people make it seem. You know, we go through that political theater every year of who's it going to be and the conventions. And, but traditionally, it hasn't really mattered that much. This time around, it matters. Joe Biden is older. He's probably only a one-term president if he gets elected. So whoever the vice president is, is certainly the heir apparent. So people are paying attention to who that's going to be. So I think it does matter. Um, if he goes with an Elizabeth Warren, let's say, I think that's a fatal mistake for him. There are other people who are more palatable. 
Um, and, you know, Elizabeth Warren was one that just did not resonate with people who he needs, the, the people in the middle. And um, so I think that would be a mistake. Others, you know, um, he's pledged to pick a woman. So he's kind of boxed himself in there with that. Uh, you know, that's what happens when you kind of do the identity politics thing. But um, I think he just has, other, he just needs to take that into consideration. So Tara, you think the numbers now are much more um, familiar and, and resemble a period during the 2016 election in which it appeared that Hillary Clinton could win pretty significantly. Now you've outlined the differences inherently in the two candidates, but we're in this period now where the, the polling does resemble, um, but just to a much larger degree, a, um, you know, a significant weakness for, for Trump. Um, do you, do you look at it in the same light that um, this was a phenomenon that that uh, Democrats got excited about, and it 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 unfortunately it it uh, for them and and the country it deviated, uh, distracted them and and deviated their focus from the important battlegrounds. Are you concerned when you talk to fellow strategists that? the apparent competitiveness in new states like Georgia or Texas or Arizona could lead the Democrats not, not to focus again on what appear to be the more likely toss-ups in the Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Well, it's, um, the, the numbers right now look very good for Democrats uh, as far as turnout. Recently, there was a primary in Georgia where the turnout was bigger than 2008 when Obama and Hillary were still competitive in a primary. That's good news because that's where you win. It's going to come down to who gets more people to the polls, um, voter enthusiasm. So in places like Georgia, that looks promising. Um, polling shows it's really close in Texas. Um, that might be a bit too far right now, but the demographics in Texas are shifting dramatically and they have over the last couple of cycles. Um, so Texas may not be that white whale. Um, if they don't win at this time, it's definitely in play in the next, next presidential election. Arizona, um, you know, the Senate race out there, Martha McSally is losing by double digits to Mark Kelly. And um, again, demographics are shifting there. Uh, Arizona's in play. I don't think that the Biden campaign would make the same mistakes the Hillary campaign made by not going to Wisconsin or Michigan um, the way that they should have. There, there's no way they're going to make those same mistakes again. There's enough money and enough personnel and enough opportunity to go around for them to focus in on those states and the ancillary other battleground states. There, there's no and way. They're, they're and amid mistakes. this pandemic, Tara, what say you about the correct approach in either virtually or in person connecting with voters in, in those states? You know, it's a challenge because Joe Biden's strength is his retail politics. He's old school that way. He does best when he's around people and they get to see him and talk to him and he can demonstrate his compassion and his, and his ability to connect with people. That has always been Joe Biden's strength. You know, does he make a couple mistakes? Is he a gaffe machine? Sure, but a lot of people brush that off as being folksy or that's just Joe. 
it doesn't necessarily hurt him. Um, when he when he's been stuck in the basement for the last couple of months because of the pandemic, that has certainly been a challenge for the campaign to get him out there and compete with the bully pulpit that Trump naturally has uh, as president of the United States. That's the reason why they had the daily coronavirus coronavirus briefings. That's why Trump is doing things in the Rose Garden. He is not he is using all of the tools of the presidency to make sure he's out there all the time, which makes it tough for uh, Joe Biden to compete with under normal circumstances, but he has to, they have to come up with creative ways. And I think they're starting to do that where they're creating virtual town halls, very specific um, opportunities like at the, at the church during the, uh, the protests where Biden went, he spoke to protesters and he went to a black church and gave an address there. Things like that, I think they're going to have to do more of. They have to see more Joe Biden, because the more they see Joe Biden as a contrast to the way that Donald Trump governs, um, it shows people that there is a difference. And is that a difference that they that they want to choose from? He's got to get out there more. And ultimately, it's about the voters and how galvanized and organized they are. So his being, you know, feet on the ground in in these states um, is important, but it was also to um, you know, Hil- Hillary Clinton's uh, disadvantage that the organizing in Pennsylvania and, and Michigan and Wisconsin, especially Michigan and Wisconsin, wasn't what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the protest movement that's come to the fore, um, racial equality and economic equality, and the unhappiness that is palpable with the, the pandemic response and the inability of our government to address those deficiencies and inequities, do the results in Wisconsin first and then now in Georgia give you some real sense that the, the boots on the ground are gonna translate at the ballot box? I, I feel confident that it will. Because for the first time in decades, you're seeing a cross-section of people taking to the streets, um, voicing their, their frustrations and understanding that, they, that righteous anger in large numbers can get things done. Um, we haven't seen anything quite like this probably since the civil rights movement in the 60s. And um, that's encouraging to me because it shows that people are engaged, they're paying attention. That didn't happen as much in 2016, and complacency and apathy kind of took over a bit, and the campaign, the Hillary campaign took it for granted that they would be able to recreate the Obama coalition. They were not able to do that, Um, and the dynamics are just different this time around. Biden's been around long enough. He's, He's got people who are experienced on his campaign that are familiar with the mistakes that were made in 2016. They also know what they did to win in 2008 and 2012 when he was part of the Obama camp. So um, they are definitely more prepared and they are definitely capitalizing on how activated their base seems to be. Um, And the pandemic is something that that impacts people directly. Usually people don't get out there until it's something that hits them, whether that's why they say it's the economy, right? Because the economy is a kitchen table issue. It's what happens to your family, your mortgage, your pockets. People are motivated. COVID-19 is something I think that's that's, uh, awakened people to what happens when you have an incompetent government and lack of leadership from the top. So a combination of all those things definitely work in 
Joe Biden's favor as far as getting people out to vote and, and enthusiastic about it. Right. And it's the economy, stupid, is, is um, maybe taking a back seat to its, its COVID and, and its, its uh, life and death. Yes. Um, how much responsibility ultimately do you think um, the, the state majorities who happen to be Republican majorities, uh, Republican governors in Arizona and Texas, um, how much accountability do you think that they're going to assume in voters' decisions? Um, that's why I asked you about the possibility of a real wipeout, because it was um, really only uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio who, of the Republican governors who uh, took this seriously from the outset. And now we're seeing still in this first wave, a resurgence as a function of um, a kind of carefree nonchalance, or you could say negligence. And I'm wondering if you think that the the spike that we've seen in, in a number of, of red states or once red states will will matter in the way you're describing. It's it's COVID stupid. Right, right. Um, so of course, because I've I've dealt with federal elections for so long, I always default to a national question when you ask me that. When I'm thinking nationally, uh, no, I don't know if it's going to be a landslide. Locally. That is a different dynamic, um, especially when you have an election year. You know, down ballot races are more in play than than usual. Uh, Larry Hogan was the other Republican governor in Maryland, even though Maryland's considered a blue state. But he is a Republican governor. He did take this seriously. Um, both he and DeWine were the pretty much you're right, the only Republican governors who were ahead of this and um, were proactive, along with the along with the Cuomo and and the Northeastern governors, etc. Um, yeah, because if you look and polling showed this, that uh, in, depending on the state, they were very happy with their governors. The governors po polled well, you know, Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan and Cuomo in New York, um, even DeWine in Ohio, Hogan, they received a Baker in, in Massachusetts, the other Republican uh, governor. They, um, they polled well because they were out front, taking it seriously, doing what they needed to do. They were, they were explaining to the, their, their constituents why these measures were being taken, and people responded to that. In the, in the states like Florida, where DeSantis was in denial for weeks and weeks and left beaches open during spring break, and, um, or in Georgia, where they opened prematurely, the, they are going to pay a price on a local level for that, for sure. But it all depends on the type of candidates they have, and what else is going on there? Because um, down ballot races can be fickle. But so Tara, how, how many folks have come out of the woodshed, so to speak, in response to the Lincoln Project? Um, and how many have incrementally um, decided over these past three years to break from Trump? Because of course you saw the different phases of the anti-Trump or never Trump vote and I'm wondering, from your anecdotal experience in, um, let's say, classic HW strategy uh, or you know GOP traditional, um, how many new folks have come out of the woodwork since the Lincoln Project's uh, amazing and uh, sort of a revelation um, and revelatory ads that that uh, really. Uh, demonstrate Trump's culpability for, for um, the, the carnage and destruction um, that, that he's sowed here. Um, I'm wondering what, that, what that's like 
over the course of these three years and whether it's accelerated at all this summer? Yeah, it's, um, I can just tell you from when Lincoln Project first launched back in December at the end of 2019 to now, the momentum has been extraordinary. Um, also the fact that the president loves to amplify Lincoln Project ads and attacks the founders, um, that just brings more attention to what we're doing. Um, and the response has been overwhelming. The amount of money we've been able to raise uh, as a result of just a couple of ads because the president attacked them and people are going, oh my goodness, you guys are making sense. We, uh, we, we want, we're cheering you on. How can we be a part of it? A lot of people who have been like I said, they feel politically homeless because they were traditional Republicans, you know, George W. Bush Republicans, Reagan Republicans that are Rockefeller Republicans. You know, they're looking at this going, this is not the party we, we knew and supported all, all of our lives, but where do we go? Because we're not Democrats, but we're, we don't want this guy in there either. So they have found a home with what Lincoln Project is doing, and it allows them to feel like they're a part of it because we're able to turn around ads and kind of sock it to Trump in his own way, you know, not letting him get away with the things that he does and pointing them out to people because it were so overwhelmed with the crazy on a daily basis that I think people have become numb to it and they've almost tuned it out. But COVID has kind of resurrected the, the idea that it matters who's at the top. And when we're in crisis, is this the guy that you really want guiding us through a time of crisis? And the protests amplified that too. So it's been very encouraging to see the response for Lincoln Project. Other organizations like uh, Republicans um, uh, voting against Trump, that's Bill Kristol and Tim Miller and those guys at the Bulwark, they're working on that where they're showing testimonials of people who voted for Trump before and said, we can't do this again. It was a huge mistake. It's okay not to vote Republican this time around. These efforts combined, Stand Up Republic is another group, we're all combining our efforts to, um, to show people that this is not the way our government was supposed to be designed or run and that there's an existential threat with Trump in the White House. And you may not agree with everything Biden does and he may be an imperfect candidate, but he's the guy that can bring us back to some normalcy and we can fight the policy differences later. Um, and we're starting to see, we're, we are starting to see a shift and polling is showing that too. Right. For anyone who was afraid, and, and there were many of us that the, the Democrats or Trump's opponents would be afraid of fighting fire with fire. Uh, the Lincoln Project has done that. And, and the magnitude of its impact cannot be overstated. So I congratulate you and colleagues on the terrific work you're doing. Um, you. you know, the sometimes you have to, you know, when you yeah. have a bully, at, you know, at some point when you've got a bully, you can take the high road and high road, but one day you're finally gonna have to pop them back in the mouth. And that's, um, <laughs> that's the Rick Wilson approach, right. <laughs> um, with, with Lincoln project ads. It's, uh, you don't want to become what you despise, but you also have got to understand the nature of the enemy you're fighting against. And you cannot bring a wiffle ball back to a wiffle ball bat to a guerrilla warfare fight. So, that's right. And, you know, for, for those who question whether that's the operating reality and principle in past presidential contests, all you can point to is uh, Barack Obama was very tough on Mitt Romney and before that John McCain. Uh, and of course, we remember in W's reelection, swift boating, and we remember the tactics at play in 2000, um, particularly in the primary. Um, but mm -hmm. I mean, 
to, to say that an election has ever been won in modern presidential history without that intensity of, of fervor and heat uh, would be a lie. That's right. It's just a matter of degree and um, you know how you do it. How low do you want to go? I mean, the Willie Horton ad back during the 88 campaign was pretty vicious and it was probably a deciding factor. Negative ads work. Um, we can complain about that and say that we need, we need to bring civility back to politics. And that's, that is true. We're not talking about calling people names and some of the juvenile things that Donald Trump does. But there's also um, something to be said for being in your face and provocative and factual. Right, right. L let me just close with this because we're anticipating a Supreme Court ruling on this critical question of separation of powers and checks and balances. And, and I know that, that um, so, some of the Lincoln Project gang um, was associated with the Federalist Society and the judicial network that appointed Roberts and Alito and more recently Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Uh, there was a landmark case involving workplace discrimination, which the fact that we call it landmark just perhaps reflects how far to the right social conservatism has gone. Um, but the, 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 the last question for you, Tara, is this upcoming decision on whether Congress ought to retain its historical precedent and right to um, be able to subpoena the executive branch, um, whether checks and balances and separation of powers do still exist. Uh, you have the district attorney in New York City, you have the Congress in the United States seeking information uh, that has not been forthcoming. And if in fact the judges, the justices rule in favor of the Trump administration and do not give, um, do not honor the constitutional principle of, of Congress's right to, to know, uh, to investigate, to have information, um, what do you expect to be the reaction of some of your colleagues, especially anyone who, who is now seeing Trump's wannabe or real authoritarianism and see a Supreme Court that is prepared to, to uphold uh, some sort of unitary executive that totally neuters congressional oversight? So that has been one of the motivating factors for why uh, George Conway, who is probably who you're referring to, um, he's, uh, he was very involved in the Federalist Society and, and a conservative uh, lawyer. And, um, you know, he married to Kellyanne Conway. They were a conservative powerhouse for many years. But George has um, walked away from that, um, that realm because, because he is so fed up with the way that Donald Trump has thrown the Constitution aside and the way that Republicans in the House and Senate have enabled him to do that, which went against everything that he and many of us as principled conservatives and our interpretation of the role of the executive branch and the Constitution and the role of Congress and separation of powers. Like These are things that were fundamental to the Republican Party's platform and belief system and the way in which we governed until Donald Trump came around and everyone seemed to forget that um, in, in order to just pledge fealty to someone who has no regard whatsoever for the constitutional separation of powers and has no, no desire to even care what they are. So 
Um, I think that, that that Supreme Court decision is going to be really critical moving forward for the health of our constitutional republic. What Donald Trump and that administration has been able to get away with circumventing Congress, um, shirking the constitutional separation of powers on a number of issues, not just the subpoena issue, but also with funding and, re and, and um, the executive orders. There's, there are a lot of things. Um, if, if that goes the other way and the Trump administration wins, um, I think that if the Democrats are smart, they can make a they can make a case for that's why we need someone else in there to appoint Supreme Court justices that are going to uphold the Constitution. Right. Um, right. It could work the other way too when it comes to social issues, um, where that's you know the Supreme Court nominees was a main issue for the evangelicals who decided to support Trump despite his significant character flaws. Um, they said, well, we don't care about any of that. We don't care what he says or does or how he acts as long as he gives us judges that we like in the Supreme Court that are going to eventually overturn Roe v. Wade or whatever they think is going to happen, which it won't. Um, so it could go either way. But, uh, you know, I, people need to pay more attention to that. I don't think that that's necessarily an issue that gets people, um, that, lay, that people lay awake at night <laughs> worrying about, unfortunately, because it doesn't impact them directly. It's a bit more esoteric but it is critical to the foundation of our constitutional republic to make sure that the separation of powers um, that our founding fathers intended is in fact honored. Yeah, and I wonder if it makes the case too for an expanded court if in fact the justices rule that way. Tara Setmeyer, host of the Honestly Speaking podcast. Of course, you can find her on CNN and a fellow at the IOP at Harvard and Lincoln Project. She says sane conservative on her Twitter profile. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Alexander. I appreciate the time.